Well, this may sound surprising to you, but open up your Bibles, listen carefully to Mark chapter 8. I am very excited about my next sermon in Hebrews 12. Uh, so excited, I decided to save it till next week. Uh, not that this room right here and those watching on is not enough to deserve that sermon, but out of every sermon I was preparing in that series, uh, the sermon on putting aside every hindrance and sin was the most, what I felt the most burdened about. Our staff spent a lot of time at our prayer time on Monday morning thinking just culturally, what do we feel like are the greatest hindrances in this generation to people's walk with Jesus Christ? And um, I spent more time on that sermon than I normally do. I spend a lot of time on sermons, but more than I normally do during a week, just focused all my energy. I'm very excited about that message. And so I really just felt that I would save that until next week when uh, more people were here. I just didn't want us to miss what I believe is very significant uh, in terms of laying aside things that hinder us from our pursuit of Jesus Christ. But I love this morning. I'm very excited about this because as I begin to pray about this, the Lord began to stir in my heart. And so I want to take this moment, which is a bit of an unusual moment, to share with you just some things that are on my heart that are specific to this moment. Some things that I believe God is revealing to us as a church uh, and things that I think God is inviting us into. Uh, Last week, we talked about from Hebrews 12, that race that is set before us. I never really put much thought into that idea, but I was really overwhelmed at that idea that even though all of us have received the invitation to follow Jesus, and there is this broad invitation to trust and follow him, God is plotting out all of our courses in a very individual and specific way. It's really a beautiful thought, isn't it? That we're just not another person, we're just not another number. The reality is, is that God is working all things out. Ephesians 1, 11, to the counsel of his will. Philippians 2, 13, it is God who works in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. You hear that? It is God who is working in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. So for every single one of you, you need to rest in the fact that God is doing something so significant in your life and so specific in your life that if he were to take the time to reveal to you everything he was doing in you that impacts everyone around you, you would not have the mental capacity to comprehend all of the rippling effects of what God's doing in your life individually. He has something very specific for you. I just think that's a beautifully encouraging thought about the love and care and concern of our God in our lives. But do you know that in the same way, God is doing something in us corporately. We don't think about this very often, but in the same way that God is moving individual people in very specific ways, he is moving groups of people in a specific way as well. And I believe this is one of the most significant things about a church. You say, why is it that God intends for every person, every believer to be a member of a local church? Well, the reason is, is because if you read the Old Testament, God has always worked through the movement of a people. So individual people, but those individual stories are significant as they fit in with the bigger movement of God's people together. The whole Old Testament follows the movement of the people of God. And when you get into the the New Testament, It doesn't just automatically become individual. God saves individuals, brings them into a covenant community, and God moves that community in a certain direction for his glory. And the reason is, is because what God wants to do with us is so much bigger and so much more significant than any of us can do individually. 
We tend to think about what does God want for me and what can I do for the kingdom? And we need to think that, but the reality is we find our significance as we take what God is doing in our life individually, join with another group, a bigger group, and that's how God advances his kingdom. One king, one kingdom, we're all moving together in that. And I would say even more significant than that, that God is moving in the broader kingdom as well. So God is doing something in you. He's doing something in your church and in the broader kingdom in ways that, that we don't know all over the world. God is also doing something and moving in a direction. I never told you this. I, I thought about it this morning, but when we last fall started baptizing all those people, I don't remember. I think it was 89 people in three weeks. We just saw this incredible movement of God. Do you know, I had a pastor from Arkansas who I had not talked to in years call me and say, Josh, I've heard about what's going on at Prince. I want you to know, and he's a real student of revival. This is happening all over America. He said that to me. He said, I could give you 10 stories right now of how this is happening in little pockets. And then all of a sudden you realize this is great, like really exciting what God is doing. But this is like a little bit of what God's doing all over the place. And so then you realize Listen, not only are you individually a part of a church in which God is moving, but you're a part of a kingdom in which God is moving. And the reality is, is that we never really get in on everything God wants to do and everything God is doing unless we engage individually in our relationship with Jesus, in a church, in our relationship with Jesus. And as we move together in ways that we'll never understand, we realize we're a part of the bigger kingdom in which God is advancing for his glory. And I'm really learning this. This is new to me. This is fresh to me. That this changes my leadership uh, as your pastor. I'm starting to realize that the most significant part of my leadership is taking the time to be still before the Lord, immersing myself in the word of God and prayer to discern where God is moving us. Now, I hate to say that after like 20 years of pastoral ministry, that's new to me, but I just feel that what God is saying to me is, Josh, your job is to discern where I'm moving the church, not just you, but the church, and then to lead us in the direction that I believe God is trying to move us. But in order to do that, I have to be discerning and be thinking about what God is doing. And so I just wanna tell you a couple of things that I believe God is doing and I'm sensing right now and how that leads to the bigger thing I think God is teaching us. You know, for me, I think a lot of this started, and I've said this a lot, but it's hard for me to communicate how significant this moment was for me. This Hebrew, Hebrews 8 moment last August was huge for me. Uh, I went back last week and uh, listened to my own sermon on Hebrews 8 uh, and was really encouraged, to be honest. Um, rededicated my life. No, I, but I just, I, I, I was so moved by the reality of how easy it is for us to be bound up in a religious system that's just lifeless. And we just as believers tend to say, we gotta do this and this and this. So we, even the good things, like we read our Bible, we go to church, we attend, da 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 But there's, there's nothing life-giving and there's nothing spirit-led and spirit-filled. And the new covenant is inviting us into this real day-by-day -day dynamic living relationship with Jesus. So, and my, I want to, to preach that and to live that and to model that. I want us to experience that as a church. So that was a big thing for me. And then through that, the Lord began to, I believe, encourage me, and I've told you this before, to spend my year 2022, doing nothing but just reading the gospels, as much immersing myself in the gospels, and I'm doing that. 
And then I think about Paul Miller coming this coming weekend. And, you know, we, we asked him to come. He said, I'll come, but I'm not traveling much. And if I travel, I do this sermon on this season uh, or this uh, session on prayer. And I said, that's great. We love prayer, but that's not what we're looking for. And he called back and he said, well, I could also do this. And it was this thing on, on understanding and seeing Jesus more clearly. This, this book that we're reading right here on love walked among us, on the love of Jesus. And I'm realizing that that's exactly where God has us. We would have never known that. And when we invited Paul Miller, we didn't know where God was going to have us. This is exactly where God has us as a church and trying to see Jesus more clearly. And then I opened the Bible this year to Hebrews 12. And the emphasis is this, look to Jesus, consider Jesus. Don't get your eyes off of Jesus. And then I'm hearing stories about what God is doing in individual people's lives. And I say all that to say this, what I believe God is stirring up in our heart is the father in his love, because he loves us and because he loves his own name and his own glory is leading us into a season in which we're going to begin to see Jesus more clearly. That's what I believe that he wants us to see Jesus more clearly. He wants us, in a sense, to, to take off the glasses that we've had on before in which we've always seen Jesus the same way and give us a new, fresh picture of Jesus. And the reason I'm so excited about us reading this book together and the reason I'm so excited about this weekend is because the whole emphasis of that is taking the Gospels and seeing Jesus in a way that transforms us. And I really believe there's a great illustration of that in Mark chapter 8. It is one of the strangest stories in the entire Gospels. It's found in Mark 8, 22 and 26. Listen to this little story here. You might remember this. I read this this week and really uh, felt like this was a good word uh, for us today as I believe God wants us to see Jesus more clearly. Look at what it says there starting in verse 22, Mark 8, 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and let him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This is without question, one of the strangest moments in the gospels. It's only found in the gospel of Mark. No one else records it. And the picture there is incredible. They bring this blind man and that word begging there means to plead and to implore. This is a, a passionate plea like you would do for the thing you needed the most. Pleading with the Lord to do something. And so Jesus really does, I believe, what any of us would do in a moment like this. He takes the man by the hand. So imagine this. Takes him out of the village. We never see anything else like that as well. So here, they're just standing here. There's a tons of people around. Jesus takes him, leads him out, does exactly what we would have done, just spits in his face. I can't tell you how many times I've done that invitation. Somebody comes forward, just spit right in their face. I mean, Jesus modeled it. Seems like a great thing to do. Somebody's really in need. How funny is this? Leads him out. No one else is there. Spits in his eyes. And then asks him the, the strangest question. Says, do you see anything? There, never do you have anything like this. I mean, there's not even a moment really in which Jesus doesn't make like an authoritative declaration. You are healed, be healed. That's what Jesus does when he heals someone. But he interacts with this guy. He says, do you see anything? And his answer is, is this in verse 24. Why well, see people, but they look like trees walking. 
So in other words, he was healed, but not completely. He sees, but he doesn't see clearly. He's restored, but only partially. And so Jesus tries again. Verse 25, it says, Jesus then laid his hands on him. Look at this word, again. And then he opened his eyes. And then his sight was restored. And then he saw everything clearly. Now, what in the world do we do with that? Uh, there's a few options. One option could be, the issue is here that the man had spit in his eyes the first time. I'm just saying these are options, okay? So he could see, but not clearly, which makes sense when you consider someone just spit in his eye. So maybe that's the issue. And then Jesus comes back, rubs it again, spit removed. Okay, now I see, option one. Uh, option two could be that uh, this was just a really bad case of blindness. Like there's other blindness, but this one was really bad. And uh, so this one took a little bit more effort, a little bit more work. Option two. Option three may be, maybe there's a principle here that we've never understood yet. A kingdom principle, which goes something like this. Jesus always gets it right, just not always the first time. Maybe that's, I'm just giving you options, all right? I'm not saying this is true. That's an option, right? And so maybe this is what it's saying to us. Or maybe, maybe this story is strategically placed here to be an illustration of something much more significant than this moment. Maybe Jesus was interacting with this man and doing a miracle in a way he never did before because Jesus wanted to say something a little bit specific. And I think that's what we start to see. Look down at verse 27. Immediately after that, immediately after that, you come to the most significant moment in the gospel of Mark. So let me just give you a little background. The gospel of Mark from chapters one through eight is answering one question, who is Jesus? Every, every passage in one through eight is answering the question, who is Jesus? And you get it answered four times in chapter one. John the Baptist answers it when he says, this is the Lamb of God. The Father answers it when he opens up heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus answers it when he opens up the scroll in the temple and said, this was written about me. And then a demon answers it when the demon says, we know who you are, O holy one of God. So four times in chapter one, it's answered. This is, this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah. All of chapter one through eight exists to answer that question. The problem is no one gets it. I mean, in chapter three, we see some people say that he's a good man. Some people think he's crazy and some people think he's demonic. At the end of chapter three, his own family doesn't know who he is. They try to take him by force because they think he's crazy. In Mark chapter four, his disciples watch him calm the sea and they say this, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? His disciples, after being with him a year, say, well, who is this guy? They don't yet know who he is. In Mark 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He then walks on water. And they're amazed that he can walk on water. And here's Jesus' response. Do you not understand the loaves? Meaning like, why are you surprised that I'm walking on the water when you just watched me feed 5,000 people? They still don't get it. And then chapter 8, right before the story of the blind man, Jesus feeds people again, this time 4,000. They get into a boat. Jesus is talking to them about a spiritual principle. And think about how funny this is. For the second time, the disciples just watched Jesus feed multitudes of people with almost nothing. Jesus is then teaching in the boat, but it says they're not paying attention because the disciples are arguing about the fact that they didn't bring any bread. It's unbelievable. 
And so Jesus knows what they're talking about and he kind of just goes off on them. Look at verse 17 up there. Jesus, aware of this, said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said, 12. And the seven baskets or fish for the 4,000. How many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? They said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And the answer is, no, they didn't understand. After all of these things that Jesus did, they still didn't understand what God was doing and who Jesus was. Now it says there in verse 27 that while they're walking on the way, it says that Jesus began to ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? That phrase on the way is really important. In chapters one through eight, this is the first time the phrase on the way is ever used. On the way. From this moment till the end of chapter 12, listen, it's used nine times. That's significant. It's never used, never used, never used. Then all of a sudden, on the way, and from here till chapter 12, it's used nine times, meaning there's some shift in what's happening here. The disciples are now on their way with Jesus. Jesus is now on his way, and we'll see why that's significant in a minute. But it says this, he says, well, who do you say that I am? And look at verse 28. They say, well, some say John the Baptist, and Others say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. No one was saying the Messiah. They had a lot of different opinions, but no one was saying Messiah. And then look at verse 29. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Disciples, who do you say that I am? And then Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about this. So think about this. Eight chapters, they're oblivious. Walking on water, they're amazed. Who is this man feeding the 5,000? I can't believe we don't have no bread. Like they literally cannot get who Jesus is. And all of a sudden in this incredibly climactic moment, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the promised one, you're the anointed priest, the anointed prophet, the anointed king. We believe you are the Messiah. And all of a sudden Jesus goes, yes, finally, you see. For the very first time, the disciples begin to see who exactly Jesus is. This is an incredible moment. Now look what happens in verse 31. For the very first time, Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. He hasn't mentioned this yet. First time he's mentioned it. And he said this plainly, verse 32. So for the very first time, Jesus begins to teach them that he's going to suffer and die. He says it plainly, no parables. He says, let me tell you exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to be led away. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise again. Look at Peter's response. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I just love the sensitivity of Peter. You know, if you're going to rebuke Jesus, at least take him aside, right? Like, isn't that? That's beautiful. Hey, Jesus, I'd like to talk to you about something. And then he rebukes Jesus. To which Jesus then responds, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, not privately, publicly, and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now you say, what in the world is, is going on here? Why would Jesus rebuke Peter so harshly? 
Well, the reason Jesus rebuked Peter so harshly is because Jesus was on his way. He was on his way to Jerusalem. He was on his way to die. And even good-hearted Peter was not gonna stop him. He was on his way. You say, well, that's great, but what does that have to do with the man who was healed in these two stages? Well, let me ask you a question. In the middle of chapter eight, did the disciples see Jesus? Yes, they see that he's the Messiah. Do they see him clearly? No, because they don't see him as a suffering Messiah. All of a sudden, this massive moment, for the very first time, the disciples begin to see, you are the Christ, it's an amazing moment. But immediately Jesus says, okay, now that you understand that, let me tell you what kind of Messiah I am. I am a suffering Messiah, to which Peter rebukes him, because although they saw Jesus, they did not see him clearly. And the reason that story is right here, listen, at the very center of the Gospel of Mark, literally at the very center of the Gospel of Mark is because it's showing us the stages in which Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples, although they finally see, they do not see clearly, just like this man. Jesus didn't need two tries to heal that man, seriously. He could have done it immediately, but he did it this way as an illustration of what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's not just for them, it's for us. Sometimes we see Jesus, but we just don't see him very clearly. And that's just part of the way it works. Like when we come to know Jesus, it's not like we're a computer and all of a sudden he puts this new program in us and the little thing goes around and around and it downloads into us and now we know Jesus. No, when we come to know Jesus, we are introduced to a person whom we will spend the rest of our lives getting to know. And we will see him at the beginning enough to embrace him and to trust him and follow him but we're barely understanding him. We understand very little of him. And then from that moment on, Jesus continues to introduce himself to us, sometimes in shocking ways. Sometimes after following Jesus for 30 years, you come to a Hebrews 8 and you begin to see something about Jesus you never saw before. Why? Because every disciple sees Jesus, but they just don't see him clearly. And I love the picture of what God is doing, his patience in a sense with his disciples. This blind man is a picture of every disciple. All of us are the blind man. The truth is we're just like a baby who can't see color at first. They see, but they don't see clearly and everything they see is a little gray at first and then it gets a little clearer and it's black and white and then it's not till four or five months and when a baby begins to see in color. You know, that's how every one of us are in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And what's sad is sometimes we think, well, I've come to know Jesus, so I'm good. Listen, when you come to know Jesus, you are a baby that barely sees Jesus. You you have gotten a little drop of Jesus. It's just the introduction to Jesus. And from that moment on, what Jesus is saying, listen, I know you've come to see me, but you don't yet see me clearly. And in a sense, it's not a knock on us. It's just the reality of what it's like to be introduced to Jesus. And then from that moment on, it's Jesus saying, listen, I want you to see me in a clearer way. I wanna introduce you to the suffering Jesus. I wanna introduce you into my heart. I want you to see me in a fresh way. As I think about what God is doing in our church, I really believe that God is calling us inviting us individually and corporately in our own pursuit to just see Jesus clearly. And let me just tell you something. You will not see Jesus clearly without your own personal pursuit and without the corporate pursuit of the church. It's just how it works. 
So you will begin to pursue him. And as you pursue him, what's gonna happen is God has begun to take what you're learning and combine it with what the church is learning. You've had this experience. I can't tell you as a pastor how many times I get done with a sermon and you're gonna say, pastor, you're not gonna believe this. I, I've been learning something that goes just along with that. That's exactly what I needed to hear. I got an email yesterday, and for the lady that's watching, I will respond, I promise, um, that said this, said, Pastor Josh, I can't believe this. I've been reading the Paul Miller book. This is exactly what God's been teaching me what I needed to hear for this relationship that I've been trying to navigate. Well, what's happening there? What's happening is God is taking this individual lady and he is moving her in a specific way. And she's joining together with the church and she's moving together with the church. And you know what's happening? She's starting to see Jesus clearly. That, church, that's my prayer for us right now. Like in everything else God is, going, is doing, my prayer for us is as we journey together and as you participate in what God is doing at our church, that we would begin to see Jesus clearly. Last thing, and I'll, I'll, we'll close in prayer. I was thinking about this in light of our mission this morning. Our mission is to lead people to trust and follow Jesus, okay? We are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. God is making his appeal through us, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Which means that what is essential to us accomplishing our mission is not just knowing the gospel, but seeing Jesus clearly and knowing his heart and loving like him and engaging with people like him. How in the world can we accomplish our mission? If we as a church are not individually and corporately learning to see Jesus with such clarity that we're overwhelmed with his love and kindness and grace and it's just emanating through us. I just want us to see Jesus and to see him clearly. As Ryan and the band comes up, I want for our invitation this morning just to begin with our time on our knees. And I just want us to pray that God as individually and as a church what allows us to see him clearly. And can I just say, if you're home uh, and you're able, physically able, just get on your knees this morning. Uh, you're still participating in what God is doing here at Prince. But that's the prayer. God, we wanna see you and see you. I think about the next few weeks in Hebrews 12 and I, I think about all of Hebrews, which is just saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Do you know God is inviting you to see him, to be overwhelmed by him, to be mesmerized by him? And so this morning, let's do it. If we're physically able and willing, let's get on our knees this morning. Before we sing our last song, let's just pray that God in his grace would open our eyes. The Psalm 119 prayer says, God, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your word. Why don't you make that prayer? God, I, I wanna see you. I wanna see you clearly. God, continue to reveal yourself to me. There's nothing I want more than to see you clearly. Pray for our church. Please pray for our church that we would see Jesus clearly. Let's just pour out our heart to God and ask that we might see him.